that we are finally here in the, the last week of the class. Uh, for me, it's a little hard, but you know, because you do all these things to kind of get ready, and before you know it, in the blink of an eye, we're all done. But again, I hope that in whatever way our times together have been helpful. Uh, we do have at least one more session together, so let's make the most of it. And uh, as always, as, you as you're having questions about different things, we can always dialogue about that more together. So yeah, if, um, if someone would be willing to just shut the, the kitchen doors, that might be a little bit helpful. Yeah, thank you. All right, perfect. And then there was silence. I can, you can hear ourselves now. So this is the last class. Uh, thank you to all who've been able to come as, as much as possible. I understand that there's many different, um, you know, things that go on. You know, you're serving in other ministries, you're out of town. Um, but we've been able to cover a lot. And so hopefully today will kind of be the culmination of everything that we've had over the last six weeks or so. As always, you know, let's just do a quick recap, right? So in this class, we started off by looking and trying to define what justice is. And we use the, the definition as the presence of right, fair, and good conduct and treatment in society. It's basically, right, are we living in a way that's fair and equitable in the way that God would desire for all of us to do? Uh, we don't define justice however we want to, right? It's based on the character of God and the laws that we see that he's given for us. But we just want, of course, make sure as we're having these conversations on these hard topics, are we using, you know, the biblical definition of our terms or are we just using an arbitrary one from some other people? We want to make sure we have that right. We spend the second week trying to understand how do we apply this topic of justice in today's world, right? So understanding that many of the laws in which you know, justice is defined and used are in the Old Testament, like written to the people of Israel who had a particular uh, you know, Mosaic covenant that they were bound to and following. How do we live out those principles now that we're in today's world? And uh, the big you know, concept that we were seeing is that in Christ, we are no longer bound to the Mosaic law, right? We're under the, the law of Christ or the new covenant as it's known. And therefore, what that means is as the church, we're called to live out what the church is called to do, right? So our main mission, our focus is on proclaiming the gospel, making sure people know the truth of Jesus Christ and helping to mature believers as we grow in our knowledge of doctrine and theology and ways of following God. But that doesn't mean that believers no longer care about being just, right? So because all that is based on the character of God and all of us are seeking to become more like God, that means that in our dealings with people, we still need to make sure that we are being what can be considered just or fair or righteous in our interactions with other people. And so that's always the balance that we're having as believers there. Uh, I love that last line here because it's a helpful distinction that there's a difference between what a Christian can do versus must do. And so in the, the conversation of justice, there are many things that a believer can choose to engage in based on their convictions and uh, the, the reality of Christian freedom, but that's very different than what every single believer or every single church must engage in there. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I swallowed the cookie wrong. I'm gonna pause this here. <coughs> here we go. So then we're going to the third week, you know, we were trying to understand the importance of knowing how, sorry for that, knowing how to dialogue and disagreement well, right? And so even if Christians understand what justice is biblically, when we're thinking about how we apply it to specific situations in real time, we're going to disagree for a number of reasons, right? Whether it's how we are seeing 
uh, scientific data or events, how we are interpreting events of history, how we are understanding how moral culpability works and whether a person is doing something that's wrong versus not doing something that's wrong, um, Christians will have differences of opinions there. And so the way that we learn how to disagree and dialogue on these topics needs to be rooted in scripture. And so we saw the main motivations we need to hold on to there, truth, love, holiness, and unity. But then we also saw some practical considerations too. You know, when we're having those hard conversations, make sure we don't, you know, fall into one of these traps, you know, where we're overgeneralizing a person's position or uh, unnecessarily slandering them, all types of things that we saw. You know, far too often, I think the danger that Christians fall into is, you know, the reason things get so heated isn't because there is a hugely dire difference in biblical understanding, but they don't actually realize how closely their positions overlap or they're using terms in different ways, right? So it's, it's helpful and needed that we're having these conversations following principles of wisdom. And then, you know, we spent the last two weeks going into this third week trying to look at various case studies, right? So now that we understand what justice is biblically, as we continue to uh, try to practice charitable, reasonable disagreements, what could that look like in a number of different cases, right? And so we spent two weeks covering uh, the first one was criminal injustice. So as you think about things like police brutality, the conversation around racism, uh, all of those types of things, how do you try to navigate those tensions well and then what are the areas in which we all need to affirm, the areas in which we can take unhelpful extreme postures, and the places in which we can charitably disagree and why, right? So we looked at that for criminal justice. We then last week did that for environmental justice, or as we saw, as you're thinking about terms like climate change and global warming, don't really fall neatly into a justice question. That doesn't mean that it's not important to talk about, and it doesn't mean that Christians can't hold different positions, but I think calling it environmental justice just isn't the most helpful way of framing that conversation. And today, to finish up the class, uh, we're going to be covering what's called economic justice. And so this is the whole conversation that we're hearing in today's world, everything from taxes to uh, reparations to redistribution, how to think about how much or how you know, believers should care for the poor, how even non-believers then think about caring for those who are homeless or don't have a certain amount of means. Uh, this often gets lumped in conversations that are called economic justice, right? And so we're going to try to parse that in different ways of what's truly biblical, what are extremes that we need to avoid, and then where are the areas in which Christians can disagree. And uh, like I've said for the last couple of classes, we use the first three to really set up what we're trying to do. And so in these last three, I'm not going to teach as long because this is where I love to be able to dialogue together. You know, hear the questions that you have, hear the, the points that, you know, you would you know, add to this conversation, hopefully that we're able to do it in a way in which all of us are refining and sharpening each other and the way that we're thinking about um, this topic. So how should we think about what's often called economic justice? How money should be spent, where it should go, what's the role of an individual versus a government? Uh, here are a couple universal agreements. Uh, the first one is this. Poverty can be a justice issue. Uh, can we find people to actually read each of these verses? So uh, we'll go through them one by one. Can someone find Psalm 35, verse 10? Okay. Uh, and then the second one will be Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. All right. And then someone find Matthew 6, 24. Okay. Uh, Romans 13, 1 to 7. 
And the last one, Luke 10, 36 to 30. Anyone from this side of the room? Okay, perfect. All right. Well, we'll keep on reading more, so we'll, we'll all be involved here. So, yeah, please go ahead and find it, and then we'll read through it as we go. So the first one, um, poverty can be a justice issue. Go ahead and read the uh, psalm passage. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor uh, from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Hmm. Yeah, so this ties back to what we saw in the first and the second class, right? That oftentimes when we're thinking about justice issues in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, those that were often mistreated in an unjust way were often those who were poor. And I think the, the helpful clarification as you break that down is that it's not an injustice to be poor, but that injustice can often happen to those who are poor, right? So what you see as the pattern in the Old Testament and sometimes can be the case today, being poor in itself is not an injustice, but being poor can lead to injustices, right? So the examples that are often given in the Old Testament is that if you do not have the resources of being able to fight for yourself, those that were in positions of power or wealth could often use that to abuse it and basically take things that did not belong to them. Um, you know, thinking back to the, the example of the David, right, as he was sleeping with Bathsheba, eventually killed her husband Uriah. You know, in uh, 2 Samuel 12, as Nathan the prophet is trying to rebuke David and help him see his sin, he uses the example of basically, hey, there was this rich man who had everything but he wanted to take from the poor man, right? You know, because he, he didn't want to use what was his own, in which case David realized, hey, that is an injustice, right? That individual deserves to die only for Nathan to say, you are that man, right? And again, that's not saying that's literally how it's supposed to be used, but you often see that used in the Old Testament in which, uh, you know, if you are a poor individual, because you don't have the ability to always defend yourself, that could lead to various kinds of injustices in the Old Testament. And so that's why you have a passage like Psalm 35, where you see that, you know, God delivers the poor man from him who is too strong, not saying that being poor in itself makes you more righteous or God will always look at those who are poor, but it's because he cares for those who are indeed weak, right, who tend to be abused, right? That's the character of our loving and merciful God, right? So poverty, it's not always a justice issue, but it can be a justice issue in that it can lead to injustice. Okay, then we have the second one. Poverty can have many different causes, right? One famous example is Proverbs 6. Go ahead and read that, please. Uh, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a banger, hmm. scarcity like an armed man. Okay, right? So one of the principles of wisdom, and we'll actually have a whole class in Proverbs in January, but is that, you know, one of the causes of poverty can be sloth. Right. And so we want to be careful that you're not the kind of individual that because you're not seeking to be hardworking or, uh, you know, do things in diligence, that that can actually lead to various forms of poverty if we're not careful. Uh, another example, I didn't write it down here, but it's from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 to verse 12. And all of us, I think, know that the Thessalonians were very much ready for the Lord's return, right? They were waiting for that. They had questions about the Lord's return. The problem was, in part, 
it led them to become lazy and basically sit around thinking, well, he's coming, so what's the point of doing anything? Right? And then you have in verse 10, it says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Right? So part of uh, poverty's reason can actually be due to uh, a character issue not working hard. But there are many cases in which that's not the case. I didn't, uh, I didn't write this down here, but you can think about the story of Job, for instance, right, where uh, he had a lot of financial means, but the Lord allowed Satan as part of the series of tests to basically take everything away from Job. And basically through a series of trials, um, you know, he lost everything, right? I think that there can be cases in which an individual had done nothing in themselves that was wrong, but whether it was due to a, a calamity or lawsuits or, you know, someone stealing, you can potentially fall into a situation where you've lost everything. And I've known people that have been that case there too. And, and so the main thing is, as we're having these conversations around poverty and finances, we have to understand that every person is in a different situation, right? So again, like we've talked about in the principle, you don't want to overgeneralize to say, oh, they're all like this or they're all like that. Every person has a unique situation. So don't oversimplify it. Uh, our third principle, I think a lot of us know this verse, that believers should not idolize money. You can, go, you can go ahead and read the Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Hmm. Yeah, so we have to be careful, right, that uh, money can easily become a heart idol in which you know, we're just wanting it no matter what and holding on to it and always checking the, the numbers in our bank accounts to make sure that it's rising, Jesus is saying you cannot serve to you know, uh, both of us. You cannot serve money and God. You have to choose one. So when you're thinking about uh, things like taxes or government decisions, it's very easy if we're not careful to actually have a kind of idolizing heart in which we're saying, well, I must hold on to as much as I can. How dare anyone take anything from me? And I'm not saying that you can't hold to different political positions, which we'll talk about in a second. But in that conversation, in that struggle, we need to be asking ourselves, is this also a heart issue, right? Regardless of whatever politics or principles you believe in, are you idolizing potentially the numbers in your bank account or what you're able to earn and have? And so we need to make sure that we're not idolizing money. Uh, another principle, right? Believers should honor the government. We have Romans 13, 1 to 7. Uh, that person can go ahead and read it, please. Let every person be sub in subjection to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have a, no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the saints. For it is a ministry of God to, to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a ministry of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers as servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Hmm. All right, thank you, Bob. That was a little bit of a longer section, but thank you for reading all of that. Um, right, so we looked at Romans 13 before, especially in the first part about the nature of government and how it exists to uphold those, you know, principles which are righteous, protect the innocent, you know, punish the evildoer. And then the later section, especially verse 5 to verse 7, you know, after listing that says, hey, part of that role is also going to be even how they will desire to bring in, you know, some of your money. And so part of this nature of honoring those who are in authority is not just saying, hey, I'll honor you as so insofar as you're doing what I want you to do, but even if it's, you know, taking money that you would rather not give up, right? You know, being willing to still do things like pay taxes. And so when we're thinking about this economic conversation, again, we want to be balanced on both sides. We want to be careful that we're not falling into that trap of, well, I want to hold on to what's mine no matter what, right? We understand that part of honoring and submitting to our government is honoring them even as they seek to collect and then spend money too, okay? Uh, I think we have one last one here. Believers should desire to help people in need. Yeah, I did figure this was a little too long of a section, so I just had to read the last one. Don't worry, Justin, I won't make you read the whole parable. That will take a while. But this is right, the famous story of the Good Samaritan, where basically there's an individual who's trying to justify himself, and there's the whole conversation of what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life or be a follower of God? You know, you hear, you know, Jesus turns it back on him, and how do you summarize the Mosaic Law? Love God and love my neighbor. Right? And then after that, the individual is trying to justify himself and says, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Who exactly do I need to seek uh, to love? And the whole principle of the story as Jesus is making the Samaritan, an individual who was despised by the Jewish people, the hero that seeks to help the individual in need, is basically saying, well, the way that you're able to show love and mercy are by helping those who are around you. Right? And so before we go off into the opposite extremes and address that, we need to make sure that we understand that this is indeed a principle for believers. Do we have a heart and desire to help those who are in need, right? in genuine need where things have gone wrong in their circumstances? Uh, you know, one other passage, it's not only related to finances, but you know, we know this very well. Galatians 6.10, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith, right? So what should our heart posture be as believers, regardless of how much we're earning, regardless of our possessions, is we should have this love and desire to say, I want to help those who are especially in the church, first of all, right? We actually just talked about this in the, the membership class Discovering NCC. One of the commitments that you're making during that is the willingness to actually serve those around you as needs do you know, arise and come up, Obviously, in wisdom, everything needs to be done uh, wisely. Um, but this heart posture of saying, how can I help and serve those who are around me? Right? Can I use other resources I have to bless other people? Uh, and again, there's the whole idea of moral proximity, right? Uh, and actually, I'll say that for a little bit later. But in general, do we have this desire? 
that, you know, when I see a brother or sister, especially in the church where there's something going on, you know, maybe, right, it's the time where you do help them finance financially, right? Maybe you help them with giving words of wisdom or whatever it may be. Do we have this heart posture of wanting to really care um, for those that are around us well? Okay, so these are general principles, right? None of this is telling us exactly how to think about some of these economic issues around things like taxes or, um, you know, government subsidies, all of that. Let's look at some of the unhelpful extremes that, that we want to watch out for as you're navigating these conversations. So I have them as kind of two different categories. Uh, the first one is kind of on one side. So one of the uh, unhelpful extremes we can have is slandering people who ask for financial help. Right, so going back to this idea that there are multiple causes and reasons that people may be in a situation in which they don't have anything. And they are saying, look, I don't think I have enough. Is, is there a way to find help, whether it's from a government or a believers or, or whatever it may be? You know, as part of what we talked about, we, want, we don't want to overgeneralize people's situations. And so we want to make sure that we're not slandering people for the, for the fact that they are asking for some type of help. And we looked at this when we looked at uh, James chapter 4, verse 11, right? You know, you don't want to speak evil against a brother. That's the idea of slander, of saying something that is unnecessarily derogatory to them. Uh, you know, and sometimes you'll hear people, right, even believers, when they're having these conversations around how much a government is spending or how much certain groups of people are getting, you know, they'll make comments like, all those people are lazy, right? Or all those people are just trying to get a handout, you know, things like that. And Again, that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals who are being lazy or wanting to, uh, you know, take advantage of a system. We just want to be careful that we don't make these overly generalized statements, right? Be careful in the way that we're talking so we're not sinning even in our speech. Another position, right, uh, is demanding that a government must tax as little as possible. To clarify, it is totally fine to desire that, right? That's why in our system of voting, there's all types of different positions that people will hold, and some will tend to say, hey, let's you know, make it as little as possible. Some individuals will say we should make it as much as possible. The reality is, right, the Bible doesn't specify that you have to hold to one position or another. And so what we're trying to say here is that, yes, it is perfectly fine to hold to that position, but the question is, how are we going to respond when laws are being set up in which this is not the case, right? When we move to a, a posture of whether it's grumbling or slandering or complaining all the time or, you know, we're taking our focus off of Christ, it is totally okay, right, in Christian freedom and liberty to have different views and positions on how money should be spent and how efficient certain things are. All of that is totally fine. But we want to make sure that we don't get to the point where we're in this heart posture of demand. It must be this way or I'll get bitter or angry or upset. Um, another extreme here, right, is ignoring the importance of loving generosity. Um, and again, this is not everyone who tends to hold to these viewpoints. But uh, when we do have the kind of posture of, hey, I believe that we should work hard. Right? And I do think that we want to have as much money as I can. One extreme is that we get so focused on that that our hearts do become more calloused, right? And it could be an example of seeing needs and say, well, here are the five things that this individual is not doing, and this is why they're a fool. 
and they've earned the place that they're in, right? And I'm not saying that people's actions can lead to particular economic situations, because they can, but we want to be careful that as you are navigating life in the church and you're meeting people with these different viewpoints, you know, make sure that we don't take things too far in which you're so focused on the importance of hard work or the importance of these wisdom principles that we are no longer seeking to be compassionate and loving and gracious in the way that we interact with others. So again, there's many different things we need to hold on to here. Yeah. Oh, I'm just thinking that in the church, it's hard to know about because generally if a person's uh, having financial hardships, it's generally kept under wraps. Mm. And there is a group in the church that has benevolence. Right. But how do we know past that who, the, who it is that really needs the help? That's one of the problems. Yeah, no, and th that's a great question. Um, let's see. Okay, I'll, I'll say it. A briefing on that now, you know, maybe it'll come up a little bit later. Yeah, obviously we have a whole benevolence ministry, right? So that's one of the benefits of being part of a church where we know it's not that. There's the individual obligation that, hey, if I've heard of something, I must be the one that's giving X amount of money to help the individual. We understand that through the benevolence ministry of the church, right, with the wisdom of, I think uh, there's a deacon who's you know, especially working there, that there are those conversations around your budget and income and what you're doing in different cases to make sure that even as a church wants to come alongside and help an individual or family, that it's being done in wisdom, right? Because obviously if there are underlying causes for a level of poverty, you want to be able to address that wisely. Um, so, so part of the comfort we can have is knowing that yes, our church is involved in that process. To your point, right? I think it's not that we must Say, hey, let me have the conversation with every individual to know if there's a financial need. Again, because these are heart postures, it's more as we're getting to know people in the church, as you have those relationships and you do hear something, um, you may be convicted to say, hey, in this moment, right, maybe they are having the help of the benevolence ministry, maybe they're not. In this moment, I just want to bless this individual, right? You know, you can totally do that. But um, yeah, so it's a great question, right? If you're saying, well, how do I find out those needs? You know, in one sense, don't take it too far where you feel obligated, which I don't think you would, to help every single person. But it's better to have that kind of posture than never think about it at all. So that's just one small thing we'll say. Um, if there's more questions on that, we can save it to the end. But that's a great question. So. On the one side, right, you don't want to get so callous and so focused on your view of economics that you just blow past everyone and think you're lazy or, you know, a Marxist or whatnot. You want to be careful in how you're viewing the circumstance, right? There's many motivations for why a person can hold to a particular position. Okay. Uh, what about on the other side, right? What are some of the other extremes that we want to be wary of? Uh, one is that we don't want to confuse equal treatment with equal outcome. Right, so in part of this conversation, as you're hearing the word economic justice used, um, the reason it often comes up is the idea that, well, to be truly just or fair, right, if we're talking about the idea of equity, that means, and again, there could be many layers of how this looks, is that either people should have a certain income level or a certain amount of money or, or whatever that may be uh, in order to be truly equal. That doesn't mean you can't choose and desire that legislation laws are done in that direction, but it's dangerous when we say that that's what you need in order to be just, right? If you're getting to a state in which you're saying, well, unless every person can have an X, Y, and Z you know, dollar amount or whatever it may be, then we're living in an unjust society. I think we're not understanding the idea of justice well. 
right? Sometimes you can see this in which, you know, even believers will say, hey, um, you know, because you're not fighting for, you know, let's say wells in Africa, or you're not fighting for, you know, the inner city, you know, it's hard to say that you're being truly just. Again, that would be misunderstanding how justice, you know, should be understood and used. As we said, you, you can still hold to some of those extreme positions out of personal conviction. If you think, well, I would prefer to, you know, vote or have laws in a certain direction, all that's fine, right? That's extra biblical. The Bible doesn't mandate one way or another, but we just want to make sure that we're not overusing that term justice, right? In the sense of economic justice. Uh, the second category. Oh, um, yeah, maybe to clarify that. So, yes, uh, as you're saying, individual cases, yes, you don't want to just endorse a person who is being sinfully lazy. Um, I'm just saying for an individual who has a whole, again, this is where laws and government get very tricky because you're making these giant decisions on huge issues. A person may say, in general, I think it's helpful for a government to tax a higher percentage to offer more programs to help people who, you know, have more financial need, um, that's totally fine. Yes, but if you're talking about an individual who is sinfully being slothful, you would not want to endorse that as a personal case. But, and again, this is part of where the conversations get tricky and why you want to have these types of one-on-one -on -one conversation. Are you talking about a person that you know where you know every dynamic of their life? Or are you talking about this whole system which is going to affect hundreds of thousands or millions of people, right? That becomes very difficult as you start to broaden it out past that. So that's a, a helpful clarification. Okay, so one of the other unhelpful extremes is when we conflate justice with generosity or love. So even as we saw, right, going back just a couple slides ago, as we're seeing that, you know, believers should desire to help people in need, uh, there's a difference between something is a justice issue and this is a love issue. Right? So as a believer, uh, is this the right one? Yes, okay. as a believer, there are many cases in which when we see needs or we, we know an individual that has some type of hurt, you know, in Christian love, we desire to help them and come alongside them. Maybe that's financially, maybe that's practically, maybe it's giving words of wisdom, whatever that may be, right? In our uh, convictions, we can have a number of different directions, but that's different than saying, because an individual is hurting, you must do this in order to be just, right? You might hear that being used a lot, but again, it's it, the, the passage we saw about the Good Samaritan, right? That's really trying to get at the heart of what love is. Um, there are those even believers that will misunderstand that to say, well, that means whatever I define as loving my neighbor is going to now be a justice issue, right? So people might say, well, um, you know, we need to dig wells in Africa so people have money in order to love our neighbor, right? And we're commanded to do that. Therefore, we must do that because it is a justice issue, right? You can kind of hear how sometimes people's train of reasoning will go in a number of different directions. Doesn't mean people cannot choose to do that in a spirit of love and desire to, but it would be wrong to say you are being unjust if we're not seeking to, you know, build wells in Africa, that type of thing. So we want to understand in these conversations around taxes and caring for the homeless, all of this, right? Are we talking about something that sh truly should be considered justice? Or can there be a different category in which we say, what are you doing in a spirit of love or wanting to love another person? Oh, yes. And this goes to the 
that third line here. It's very easy to misuse the command to love our neighbors. Uh, how many of you have ever been in a conversation or you read an article in which a person has said, I think we should, whatever the position is, because we're called to love our neighbors. Have you guys ever had a conversation like that, read an article like that? Just, just by show of hands, I'm curious. Um, okay, so, so some of us. You know, as you start to read on some of these justice conversations, it does come up quite a bit, right? And again, we're called to love our neighbor, but the question is, what does that actually mean? It's one thing to say, hey, I know a person individually that I know that has a hurt and a need, and in God's grace, I feel convicted to love and care for that person, and I want to help them. Right? That's a very different case than saying there are people thousands of miles away, and so part of loving my neighbor requires that I do that. doesn't mean you can't engage in that, but it's the difference between can and must. Right? What, a, what a believer can do versus what a believer must do. So sometimes that idea of moral proximity can be helpful, um, but again, there's going to be different thoughts there. Okay, the last unhelpful extreme. Uh, this can tend towards those on one side of the conversation around economic justice, but again, this is for any believer. Uh, and this is where we read certain practices in the Old Testament and say, because Israel did this, believers should also do this, right? And so you think about some of the principles, I think Leviticus 25 or, you know, around the, the concept of Jubilee, right? After a certain number of years, you know, uh, debts are going to be forgiven and, you know, land will be restored. And, and that's something that was celebrated in the time of Israel. Um, but because that was done, therefore, in our modern day church, we should do that, right? You know, debt should only be a certain amount of time. You can hold to that position, right? You can vote for positions like that, but that's different than saying the Bible mandates that believers do that. So let's just take a moment to see why. So I think all of this comes from Kevin DeYoung. Um, there was that book I recommended earlier on called What is the Mission of the Church? So really helpful book, just trying to understand the nature of justice. But he breaks down a couple principles that I think are helpful for us. And so this kind of goes into the whole conversation around hermeneutics. How do you rightly understand the Old Testament in light of the fact that we're under Christ living in the New Testament period? And here are just a couple reasons that he gives to understand some of the contrast. Uh, number one, as we're thinking about in today's world, uh, we are not an ancient agrarian society, right? So in that day of Israel in which so much of how they were living and uh, economics were done was done through basically farmland or the land that they owned, um, that's a very different story than where we are today, in which there's many ways that an individual can earn an income or, or live and provide for himself. A second one, this is huge, right? Our property has not been assigned directly by God. So think about in the, the time of you know, Joshua, where they, they're getting ready to conquer the land. Yahweh is the one who said, okay, tribe of Manasseh, this land will be yours, right? And, you know, for every single one, tribe of Reuben, this one will be yours. Um, each of the, the segments in which they lived on were given to them by God. And right? they're saying, as long as you're obeying and following me, you will be in this land and it will be your, your inheritance in the future. And so as you're reading through some of these uh, laws that are, that are then given about restoring some of the debts or some of the, the pieces of land, that's a really important thing to recognize, right? It's very different than where you and I live today in which God has not ordained, you know, Alex, you will live on Providence Road, which I'm grateful that we do, right? But that was not, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to forever have that as my inheritance on this earth. 
Israel was just a very different uh, you know, nation and time. Uh, very similarly, number three, our economy is not based on a fixed piece of land. So, so much about the way that trade was done, the way that, you know, commerce was done was understanding that, you know, these were the particular elements in which, you know, you will own this particular piece of land. And that's why some of the laws trickle out the way that they do. In our world, that's just not how it is today, right? We have the ability to, again, earn money, buy and sell different parts of where you can live. And then, of course, right, these last two should be pretty obvious. Modern nations are not under the Mosaic Covenant. So this goes back to everything that we had already hit on before. Um, because we are not under that Mosaic Covenant, we can't look at the, the festivals or the rituals and say we must do exactly what it said here in, in today's world. That's just not how things work hermeneutically. And that's connected to this last point, too. Most of us are not Jews, right? So... Uh, God had his people Israel in the Old Testament time, and things were done because those were going to be his ethnic national people. Um, all of us who are believers today, we are indeed God's people, um, but we don't look then at those Old Testament laws and say we must follow that. Uh, so sometimes when you're having conversations around economic justice, right, I use that uh, example of the, the year of Jubilee. And many even New Testament believers will say, hey, look at what God had done, how wonderful that is that, you know, debts were released and people in slavery were brought out, all of these wonderful things. We should do this too. Um, just hermeneutically, that's not a, a position that we can, you know, hold on to. That doesn't mean you can't vote or think that forgiving debts or whatever it may be is something that a, a person should choose to pursue. It just does mean that we can't look at a passage of scripture and say, Bible, the Bible demands that we do X, Y, or Z. Okay, so uh, hopefully this makes sense. These are kind of the extreme positions that we can hold on to. Let's just look at now areas of understandable disagreements. And so this is why, or, or some of the areas why people will have these huge back and forths, because the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us the answer. As we looked at in the third class, there are the principles that we know are directly biblical and which all Christians have to hold on to, but then how you apply this in day-to-day -day life as you make decisions about national politics and what you think is most valuable, um, Scripture doesn't always tell us how you must think or vote on some of these issues, right? So here's the first question. How much can you give or should you give or tax before it becomes more enabling than helpful? Right, so in this desire to care for those who have less financial means, the Bible won't say, well, give them, you know, $1,000 and then everything is good, right? There's no number that's given. Uh, we just have the principles in scripture. And so that's why you'll have believers on either side thinking, well, maybe you should, you know, give them more over time. And that means that some of that will come from us. Or you have individuals that say, no, there's enough people who abuse systems in which I would prefer to, to give less overall because it's going to be enabling certain lifestyles that are sinful or unwise or whatever it may be. Uh, another area of this understandable disagreement, how much can you give or tax before it hurts some people more than it helps others, right? So that's the whole idea of, again, scripture doesn't say we have to mandate a certain level of wealth or value in a currency, right? But the Bible doesn't say anything directly about that. But that can be a question in which people will be asking themselves, right? As you continue to give certain amounts to help people, you know, is that going to inadvertently uh, hurt the larger population over time? Um, that is a question that you need to ask as you're having these conversations. 
a third general understandable disagreement. Um, what services should be considered a basic human right? right? So this is the conversation that you'll hear about. You know, does an individual in a righteous society, do they must have access to water? Right? Should they must have access to food? Should they must have access to medical care? Right? There's going to be believers that take different positions on what a just society, a proper society, must be able to provide for its people. Right? The Bible won't say uh, all individuals must have access to a hospital to get surgery for their torn Achilles. Right? It doesn't say anything like that. But in wisdom, believers will take different positions on what they think is helpful. Right? And again, if you're going to say that is a right, you need to make that case. But you know, the, the scriptures don't say hey, you must believe X, Y, and Z explicitly. This is going to be an area in which believers will disagree. And then another a discussion around economic injustice. Uh, how long do you try to correct past injustices before it's enough? Right? So whether you're thinking about the horrible sin of slavery, right, in which people were enslaved and they weren't able to um, you know, do certain things or be treated as a true image bearer of God, and yes, right, if there's an individual that you've offended and hurt, you know, part of, you know, forgiveness and, you know, repentance, as you see in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, um, you know, chapter 7, is that you want to make restitution or amends for what you've done wrong to an individual. Um, but if you're talking about you've hurt an individual and they now have a son, do you still have that same level of expectation of wanting to restore if you stole from the individual, right? And then if that goes to the third generation or the fifth generation or the seventh generation, um, that becomes a moral ethical dilemma, right? So even if you have a desire of you're saying, hey, an individual has been defrauded or stolen from, right? And part of making it right is that restitution. How do you do that as time kind of continues and trickles on. And so sometimes you've heard that term reparations that's often come up around those that were descendants of slaves, right? That's where the argument in question comes from. At what point, you know, or how do you try to make amends for people who were hurt? Uh, but given that now many generations have come and gone, uh, you know, bloodlines have now mixed, that becomes a much trickier kind of question. And it's much harder than say, because individuals were slaves, therefore, you know, X number of people must receive however much money. So those are, that's just one example. One other one too, right, this even comes to the question of even like affirmative action, right? So part of the, the conversation we had a little bit in that fifth or fourth class was, okay, if people have been affected by racism, right, directly people were um, treated, mistreated, or they were rejected, you know, based on the color of their skin, is there a world in which a believer can affirm something like establishing laws to try to fight against discrimination? But then, as we're thinking through these ethical questions, even if you do hold to that position, you know, do you have that forever? And I think even those that were establishing some of those policies during a, a time in which racism was very strong in the country would say, hey, you know, partiality like this is sinful and wrong, so we want to fight against it. But we understand that the country might not always be in the same place it is today, right? And so maybe a policy that you have for a season of time can be good, but it might not be needed forever and forever. So these are just some of the areas in which Christians are going to need to have these harder conversations. And the reason that we're bringing up this last part is to show, hey, 
the Bible, even if you affirm everything you hear about justice and everything about equality and fairness and all of that, we're not going to all land in the same camp or positions on some of these issues. This is where we need to have these wise and scripturally informed uh, conversations to say, hey, why do you think it's good to tax less or tax more? You know, why do you think it's helpful to offer this service or not for those who are homeless, right? We don't want to take the kind of posture that all of it's good or all of it's bad or all of it's just or all of it's unjust. Some of that might be just or unjust, but we need to have specific conversations instead of lumping everything into one general category. Okay, so again, I know that's quite a bit, uh, but just wanted to leave it all out there as much as we can leave time for you know, more conversation. So I would love to have that now. Um, if you, so what we'll do in, in two groups, because I know this is the last class we have, I think it's like 20 minutes left. We'd love to know specific questions about this topic around economics and how to understand what is just versus unjust. And then I would love to know if there's other questions or thoughts for the class as a whole. You know, whether it was previous things we covered, um, you know, moral questions you have about different things. We'll try to hit it in those two different stages. Okay, so first one with economics. Yeah, Tony. I have to get out of here in three minutes, so no, thank you. Um, yeah. So in, in regards to that last point, how, how long do you try to correct past injustices? Um, I, I would just love to get your thoughts on Revelation 20, um, 12 and 13. Um, in regards to reparations today, um, for, for individuals, right? So uh, my understanding of, of modern reparations would be, hey, injustices for minorities, um, either through um, personal monetary reparations or even national governmental um, reparations, um, you know, essentially through taxes, right? We would tax the majority to then give to minorities because of the past sin of racism. My understanding with Revelation 20, 12, and 13, we see a theme that individuals at the judgment seat of Christ are going to be judged according to what they had done. Um, so because individuals today have not committed the particular sin of, of enslavement, therefore we wouldn't have to uh, biblically take place in reparations in that example. Um, that's my understanding. Anyway, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so yes, when you're looking at the, the nature of judgment for sin, it is on that individual basis, yeah. right? So it's not that, you know, you're judged for the sins of whether it's a previous generation or your forefathers, whatever it may be. You know, my general take on how we think about reparations, and this is just with economics in general, is, you know, you can make decisions purely because you think it can be helpful, Right. But if you're thinking about, you know, should reparations take place or must it take place because there have been past sins in the past, um, yeah, I don't think you would have to go there, right? And so if you're saying, you know, I'm doing this because, you know, previous people have been hurt, kind of with what I was alluding to, it's very tricky to know how you do that properly and well because so much time has gone on. I would say, uh, and I, again, all of this is extra biblical, right? Um, you know, when, when um, slavery was first being abolished, you know, there were people that recognized, okay, as part of this, you know, we do want to financially help those individuals who have been hurt, which I think some of the reparation conversation is based around. The reality, though, is with so much time passing, so many different, you know, programs being offered, is that still necessary? Right. Yeah. So, so I would be a distinction between a desire to help those who you see may be in need 
versus um, a desire to penalize the majority for something that they may or may not have done. Uh, yeah, th that can be a helpful clarification. Yeah. Okay. I, maybe the one other nuance I would add is when you're thinking about a government, you know, whether it's America or anywhere else, you know, wanting to, you know, yes, draw taxes for specific causes. Uh, it might be to specifically penalize certain individuals. Um, the other reality is if one thing that a government always does is a straw in taxes, that act in itself doesn't always have to be a form of penalizing individuals. So that's where it becomes a little bit trickier, where I wouldn't want to say a government doing this is trying to punish a quote-unquote majority, because the reality is a, a government are always making decisions of how much do we draw from, for what reasons, you know, for a number of, of various causes. So. Right. It just it would seem, in my opinion, um, to penalize the majority for something that they had not done themselves. Right. Um, though, you know, because they're from a particular um, ethnicity of people that may have done that in the past, that that wouldn't quite line up mm. right, with that idea. That, I guess that's my thought. Okay. Yeah. You know. So, for instance, if um, and maybe this is happening, I don't know. There are taxes that are saying uh, if you are of a um, you know Caucasian background, you know then we will tax you X, Y, and Z amount. Yeah, then I would say that that would be different. That is more of a direct penalization versus a government saying as part of this desire to make amends for the past, here's a general tax that we will put on. Yeah, so Christians can you know affirm. I think that second category, they can also choose to not and vote against it. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No. And thank you for asking that question. Yeah. That's good. And I'll let you get to. Uh... I gotta go to Oh. Okay. Yes. Communion. Okay. Uh, yeah. Other questions you guys have about this idea of economics? I have one, but I go to your second point. If you uh, if you look at the historical aspect of of uh, when you give before it hurts, if you look at the historical aspects of giving money to a particular issue, mm -hmm. historically it's been more uh, detrimental than beneficial. Right. I do have another question. Okay, sure. Overall. So I'll give you a little. Yeah. Just to clarify, Tim, when you're saying overall, is this around this economic subject or is this like a. Economic, but also this overall perspective. It starts with economic. Okay, sure. But so it kind of goes to what your Matthew quote. So deal with syllogism. So attribute of God, God is just, God is sovereign. And this is like the extreme position. God is just, God is sovereign. Um, at what point in time do you just say that, okay, and then you go to the Matthew quote, don't be anxious, that God will provide mm -hmm. what he provides. And when, so if a person's individual or an aspect of society is a certain way, when can, you know, is it, it, you just don't want to be callous to it. But at some point in time, you can say, okay, well, that's, is that not God's sovereign? choice. If God is just and God is right and he has decided that, then how is that not just? Hmm. Okay. Um, I think I understand. There's, yeah, there's multiple so layers, it's right? Little, it's a little syllogistic. Yeah. Well, and so maybe uh, let me know if, if this is a proper understanding. So there's the question of, in general, you know, if God is truly sovereign, he's endorsing or allowing things to take place as they are, how much personal responsibility should I take for Responding to individual um, concerns of people—is that one element? Yeah, I think of the... Who are we to to uh, to uh, try to change 
Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so there's just in general, how much should we be trying to do in response to the fact that God is sovereign? Yeah, I would say, you know, biblically taking all of these different principles that you see, you know, God's sovereignty is absolutely true, but then you see just as much verses which talk about what believers are called to do, right? So, I mean, one, you know, way that you see that uh, debate is even with the nature of salvation, right? If God is truly sovereign, why is it that people should still evangelize or why should I try to repent of my sins? if God is truly sovereign, right? So that's often kind of the paradox that you see. And I just think as believers, we hold all of these quote-unquote paradoxical truths together in that God is indeed sovereign and whatever he wills will come to pass. But then we also see that he gives humans the responsibility in our human understanding to respond, make decisions, and obey him. And so when it comes to whether it's the desire to be charitable and, and help an individual monetarily or in whatever sense, it is true that you can say God is sovereign over all things and has allowed it for a reason. Um, I would be cautious of using that to then say I should never do anything because as we've seen from some of these other passages, we are still called in his sovereignty to love and show mercy and care for people in tangible ways. So I would just say we don't want to use God's sovereignty, whether it comes with our understanding of salvation or how we even consider to pray or serve other people. We never want to use it in a fatalistic sense where it stops us from acting in human wisdom in the ways that we can. I think it's, it's the both and. So you trust, you know, using the principles of scripture and wisdom to live in a way that is biblical and helpful and wise. And part of that can be helping, under, uh, helping other individuals knowing that you do all of that with the assurance that the Lord is in control, no matter what happens. I would almost say it's almost a fruit issue of love as opposed to a justice issue. Um, yes, yes. So for, for a lot of this conversation, yeah, you want to be careful of saying um, you must do this in order to be just. Yeah. Uh, right. But in a spirit of Christian love, yes, as we're seeing different circumstances, we want to be able to help. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Okay, um, so other questions specifically about um, this economic uh, conversation. Hmm? Good question. This is just kind of a dovetail for what you were saying. And I don't know if I'm going to get this across well or not, but I'll try. <laughs> uh, I was thinking God's sovereignty, uh, that, you know, certain situations, yeah, they've been allowed, certain people have been allowed to be in a impoverished situations for just myriad reasons might just be their parents, you know, and, you know, just, just, you know just born into it, whatever. So therefore they're a little, they're at a, a bit of a, um, they need extra help to get out of that cycle, you know what I mean? And there's lots of help in America, thank God, you know, we have lots of, I'm thinking about the federal things and social, but I'm also thinking it's also God is also sovereign sovereignly allowing uh, poverty, other things that for the church to kind of uh, have something to to uh, notice and pay attention to, and individuals to change. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. actually grow because of the sovereign situations 
You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That they feel called, maybe individually, I'm not talking about a blanket thing. Right. I'm just talking about individually. Oh, of course, yeah. That you would feel called in a certain area, whatever. And it's like they work together, kind of synergistically, if I'm saying this right. You know, the, the need and the means to the, the, the means to the, Blessing, the means to the help. I think we're trying to say that, or at least I understand, that God's sovereignty is creating a society by which Christians can demonstrate and illuminate their love for their fellow man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and maybe to add on to that too, it's, you know, you understand God is sovereign in all things, but in our human perspective, he gives us the ability to act in ways that will either lead to more poverty, more wealth, <coughs> Um, so yes, it's again the paradox of God's total sovereignty, and yet we do make choices in real time that have consequences. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, I'm just thinking like this is totally kind of like a paradox too, I guess. But like it's actually most well in my case, it's mostly your sin, your failings, you know, that that propels you to the Lord. Mm, right. Yeah. And as, as a whole, you're right that, you know, whether it's, of course, yes. But, you know, and again, many circumstances, it could be having less finances. It could be going through a health situation, right? Any, any types of difficult moment, the Lord is always using that to sanctify his people. Right? And that's why I think, you know, James 1, 2 says we should be counting it joy, right? When we go through trials, because God uses that for good purpose. And so, yes, as a whole, I would affirm what you're saying when we are going through difficult circumstances, including financial circumstances, those are always times that the Lord is using it to uh, sanctify and refine our heart in one way or another. So, okay, yeah. I'll try to make it quick. Um, the what services should be considered a basic human right, that one is always puzzling to me when I think about inalienable or inalienable rights. Am I pronouncing it right? Um, and like, like access to water, healthcare, education, our constitution, which was based right on some Christian like doctrine, um, I believe, um, talks about we have a, the right to the pursuit of happiness, but not necessarily a right to happiness directly. So I think about that a lot. But I guess my question is: Is does the Bible explicitly say what are inalienable rights, mm. or do they? Or this is an area of disagreement because the Bible doesn't say right. yes this and this is a right yeah so uh, my position would be that scripture doesn't explicitly say you know what is supposed to be right in that sense i think if you're taking the principles as a whole especially as being image bearers of god seeing the sanctity and value of life the general principles that we would want to follow are those in which it is promoting in general people being alive and, and thriving right so that's why you know you would lean in directions of saying yes it would make sense that uh, you know, people, no matter where you are, should have access to those things like food and water and a safe environment. Um, so I, I would make that argument knowing that Christians can make other arguments as well. I just think that from what you're seeing as the importance of human life, that would be the, the foundation of what I would use to say, yes, we need to care for individuals as far as they're alive, yeah. yeah. And again, if you have other thoughts, Please speak with me after. And again, you don't want to just make a statement saying, I think this. It's, okay, what do you think? 
and how are you basing that on scripture, right? So in all of these conversations, I know there's many directions these conversations can go. That's the main thing we always want to draw from. How are you getting your position from what God's word actually has to say? Yeah. Okay, um, so we have yeah, 10 more minutes. So would love any questions, and especially uh, if it was either this class or other classes, we can definitely talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so there wouldn't be that type of super direct, hey, we're going to send a blanket email to everyone about a particular individual. Um, you know, there, there's kind of multiple ways of, of kind of practically being able to help individuals. So for instance, we think of the mercy ministry of the church where you know, you can sign up to say, hey, I, I want to be able to serve when something does come up. And as people have needs, sometimes that ministry will be sort of paying, saying, hey, here's a practical help for this family. Is anyone willing to help? That would be one way to potentially get involved. Um, and then obviously we have the prayer list. So as there's you know, general needs that are coming up, we make them generally known, but not so explicit as this is the particular thing that's being required. I think that's probably more on a person-to-person -person basis, yeah. yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on that? No. Yeah, that's good. I know I don't do that. I wasn't meaning to calling out a specific individual. I was just meaning like there's a need for someone in the membership that needs a washing machine, for instance. Mm. Uh, would you like to give money to help the church uh, fund that need? You know, mm. something more anonymous as opposed to calling out a specific individual? Yeah, I, I think some of the similar principles would apply in that, you know, there's the general process through our benevolence team that helps with that. And we would just trust, you know, as they're knowing specific, you know, circumstances, they're able to use either the, the funds that have been given towards the benevolence fund and or the offerings of different people to be able to meet specific needs. So I would say there have been cases where people have said, hey, I have this thing, this refrigerator or whatnot that I'm happy to donate if there is a need. They'll talk with myself or, you know, one of the elders or someone. And then depending on different situations that we're aware, we can make that known. But yeah, for various reasons, we don't kind of make that a general PR every you know, two weeks or so. Um, you know, one of the dangers could be that uh, as more people see that, then you have many individuals, even outside the church, saying, hey, I know that these are coming out. Why can't I be on the list? And then it could be um, less helpful than and it is helpful, yeah. It, it seems to me that I recall, maybe incorrectly, that I have seen some information go out 
someone needs a car because their car broke down. Is there anyone in the congregation who might be helpful here? Mm. So and so is moving. Are there, pe are yeah. there people who come alongside and help pack or help them mm. move? I've seen that. But I'm not sure which, if it was a specific ministry yeah. that put that. Yeah, and again, I, I wouldn't know specifically which one you're talking about, but that is where we have things like a mercy ministry list where things like that can be offered. We just wouldn't do that as a general church blast email. Yeah, but again, so even what I think, you know, Dave and Michelle were saying, you know, part of this is always the question of how do you help people in wisdom, right? So one thing that uh, to say is, you know, when you're seeing an individual in need, as you're feeling convicted, by all means, you are able to help that person, whether it's with a meal or you know, potentially finances. In wisdom, there is the question of, are there already other groups of people that are seeking to help that person? Are there other reasons for the lack of, of finances, like decision-making that are overall contributing to that circumstance? In that case, maybe what's most helpful is not a financial gift, but you know, wisdom to know how do you think through careers and savings and things like that. So I would say every case is different. Uh, we just want to make sure that we see the, the general principle of wisdom with the reality that as individuals feel particularly convicted, by all means, we can be generous individually as well. So, uh, okay, was there a follow-up question or a statement? Isn't there also the benevolent, There is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that can be a general, yes, yeah. So that could be a general way of doing it. Where, let's say, going back to one of the principles as believers, we do want to care for the needs of the body. And you're saying, I don't always have the personal wisdom to know every detail of the situation, but I do want to help. That can be a way of potentially doing that. Yeah. needing to engage with that individual because you are members of the body of Christ does not mean that we don't have problems mm -hmm. and we're not addressing those issues in our life. So some of the things like uh, counseling, financial counseling is needed. Uh, the perception may be that a person thinks the church should just give you something but we need to teach and help them to understand they have a responsibility to care very carefully for what God gives them. And it's not comparative to the other individual. So that's discipling, and that's what the church does when we have persons who have all kinds of problems. Mm. It could be drinking, it could be personal counseling, mm -hmm. but the aspect of the discipling part is the extension and long-term need that the individual will have rather than just giving to them because mm. this issue is manifested. Yeah, yeah I think that's a, a helpful comment to make, right? We're having these conversations around money specifically because that's what we're talking about today, but like any aspect in the church, 
whatever your particular question or issue is, there are so many dynamics of sanctification, discipleship that are involved, right? So a person's need could show and eventually lead to more heart issues of, you know, whether it's pride or, you know, potentially uh, just, you know, faulty ways that they've thought about, you know, how the church should help them or ways of, you know, taking care of things financially, many different reasons for a particular person's need. And hopefully as we're having this conversation, we don't get so pigeonholed on thinking, hey, it's all just about the money aspect, right? If the overall goal is helping people become more like Christ, that's always the heart behind every one of these economic conversations. Yeah, so that, that's a very good statement. Yeah. Uh, so I'd also say there have been times where someone is having a budgeting issue, for example, and they need dishwasher. Um, I know within our mercy ministry, there are those that will sit down before we just hand out money and say, hey, how can we help you be a good caretaker of what God has given you? Should we help you build a budget? All of a sudden, that personal responsibility stuff, yeah. I know is very much included for it's, you need $700 mm-hmm. for this, here's a, here's a fund. Yes, yeah, no, that's a great clarification. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, okay, great. Well, uh, I know, again, all of these are very complex topics, right? There's always these very, uh, maybe we have personal experiences that we were thinking about, whereas you're hearing some of these principles, you're wondering how that all fits together. As always, I would just encourage, you know, if you have more specific questions, comments, please talk with me afterwards. Unfortunately, for time's sake, there's only so much you can capture in these sort of three-minute you know, questions and, and answer, but th- these are really important topics. And so even though we can't get to every one, please know that they are valued. Um, they're helpful, they're meaningful, so let's please have the conversation around there. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we as always come before you just so grateful and worshipful for everything that you have done in our lives and continue to do. Um, Lord, I just thank you even for these last six weeks and all of the brothers and sisters in Christ that we have here and that we've been able to share this time together, um, the informal conversations and fellowship even before and after we start and, and, and these hours that we've spent looking to see what your word says and the ways in which we can think more carefully about how to live out your truth in our lives. And Lord, I pray that even as we go from here, you would help every single person to walk away better informed in how to have loving, God-honoring conversations on these difficult subjects? Will you help us to make sure that we are affirming your truth and not compromising on what's biblically true and, and, and even now be able to better engage our, our friends and family who are uh, twisting the truth of Scripture in ways that are um, not in accordance with your word? But also, God, even as we engage with those who do affirm the truth around these areas that can be very much gray instead of uh, clearly black and white, will you help us to know how to engage in these conversations with a spirit of truth in love, that we would not compromise on what is biblical, but at the same time always engage in these difficult conversations in a way that honors Christ and that would draw and lead to further conversation. And so be with us as we go from here, as we enter this week with many different trials and triumphs and the ups and downs of life. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus Christ most of all. And so we love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.